Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to tabletop game design. This episode has been made possible thanks to the excellent folks behind Breakout Con 2017 in Toronto, Ontario. Episode 112 Getting Kids into Games. Recorded at BreakoCon 2017. Moderated by Peter Van Heel. Presented by Daniel Kwan, Rachel Kahn, and Sean Monroe. Kids into games, or kids in gaming. You know, it's going to be uh, covering a wide-ranging number of topics. And this morning we've got uh, Rachel, Rachel Khan, and uh, would you be Sean? Sean Monroe. Uh, Sean Monroe, yeah. and we have uh, Daniel Kwan. And I'm uh, Peter Van Heel. Um, uh, as I said, I'm the moderator. These are the experts. My uh, uh, sole experience with getting kids in gaming is that I have kids who have gamed with me, um, which I think is a pretty good experience, but. Uh, I think we'd like. I'd like to start. Actually, maybe we can go uh, across the panel. Folks can introduce themselves, tell you who they are and what they do, and uh, who wants to start? Who wants to start? This end or that end? I'll, I'll start. There we go. I'm Daniel. Um, I've been working in gaming for oh a long since 2005. I've been. Uh, I teach a program at the Royal Ontario Museum uh, that uses Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder to teach kids uh, history, science, and social skills. Um, I run a second organization called Roleplay Toronto, and we help adults with autism learn social skills using uh, role-playing games. Uh, and I'm also the host of a podcast called Curiosity in Focus. Uh, I'm Sean Monroe. I've been running Game Master's Table, which is a program my partner and I created uh, to talk to kids about identity formation, personal advocacy, and world building. We use early childhood education principles to use play-based learning and uh, and focusing on what the kids are interested in to turn it into teaching methods through very story-based creative RPGs. Uh, we also use board games when kids tell me that they hate math. Uh, and uh, we've, been, we've been running it for two years now, uh, and we are starting to expand into homeschooling programs, which is really exciting. And I'm Rachel Kahn, and I've worked in tabletop games for five or six years on the illustration end of things, and have largely through meeting Daniel and approaching him as an illustrator in the field, gotten into a lot of this stuff, uh, collaborating with him a little bit on his program at the ROM, and then also starting a similar program at the Aga Khan Museum, but focusing on immersing the kids in a historical setting and walking them through historical texts uh, by sort of sending them on their own quests in that landscape using a lot of collaborative map making, map making journaling, and uh, research tools to help the kids bring themselves into this world through the act of playing tabletop role-playing games. Okay. So, <clears throat> obviously we've got to point panel backwards here. Um, you've all mentioned the use of uh, a gaming as an educational tool. Uh, and you mentioned, I think, Sean, you're saying that uh, you actually use it for uh, teaching kids math skills, and those board games and so on. Uh, Rachel, you're talking about immersive experience, like an immersive living history. So obviously there's like a value to skills transfer um, uh, in terms of the value of gaming with kids. Um, yeah, like, how, like what sort of results do you see? And you mentioned you, you uh, do you role playing with autistic adults? Yeah, and, and kids what, as well. Kids, actually, yeah. what sort of value? Like, what sort of value comes out of the uh, of gamifying their, their education? Well, gamifying education gives them uh, kind of a way to explore like things like identity and social interaction in you know a setting that's relatively you know low consequence. I mean, there are consequences in game, but outside of game, there there aren't too many consequences, and it, it allows them to try to to do things that they might find um, scary or uh, outside of what is normal to them uh, and of course like like world building is really important for that because you know everybody sees the world differently and if you're playing a game where you know, your experience in this 
fictional world um, is just as real as everybody else. Um, you know, you have a say in what goes. And, and a lot of people, you know, with autism spectrum disorders, you know, have a hard time with that uh, in, you know, every day. Uh, I found a lot of really similar results of uh, giving kids the ability to uh, to explore bits of identity that on a day-to-day basis, uh, sort of the social structures that we're used to, uh, if, I'm, if I'm the class clown one day, I can't stand up and announce, I don't want to be the class clown anymore, I'm changing characters in front of your, in front of your school. So allowing kids to experiment with how else can I, can I be or like where do I want where do I want my character to be in six levels and how do I get there and, and what building blocks are used for that kind of identity. So we've, we've seen a lot of results in the program of kids who feel really pigeonholed by really stagnant identity. Of I was told I was this thing and now I'm that thing forever uh, and I can't foresee that ever changing and putting them into a situation where you can swap your characters out and experiment with that uh, was a was a big factor. The other the other really big success that we've seen uh, is with kids who start uh, figuring out sort of how how the world is built around them. Uh, that that all of the all the structures that we see of government regulations and things like that are all are all rule systems that can be understood. That they all have breaking points and bending points, and really getting excited that. You can challenge a rule, you can see what works for you, you can focus on things, and the things you focus on uh, will both become more clear and more malleable as you, as you look at them. I found, I was working with kids at the Agacon who were right at that end of being able to play pretend with each other, and when we started playing games, I gave them access to this sort of collaborative space that they hadn't figured out how to keep going. And so they were all, you know, 12, 13, and sort of rediscovering how they could collaboratively storytell and take themselves to this place that was this kind of magical liminal space that games provide, especially, I think, RPGs, where on the one hand, you don't have to take that out into the real world, but on the other hand, there's a set of rules and consequences for your actions. So they were able to practice a lot of collaboration a lot of teamwork, a lot of negotiating with each other about what their group goals were, what their group interests were, and how people's actions were affecting that without having the weight of their actual social structures like looming over it. Mm-hmm. So I found that kids who weren't speaking to each other outside of the gaming table were practicing collaborating and negotiating with each other in a way that felt really different from how you do it on a school assignment or something where there's these huge, heavy, real-world consequences and everyone gets really mad. So I was able to watch kids guide each other through different things or negotiate their goals. And so that meant sometimes if one character really wanted to kill the monster and nobody else wanted to, they had to talk about it. And it, they were able to do it with an approach that was a lot less uh, aggressive and intense than we saw when they were negotiating things that had real-world consequences. So I thought that was one of the most exciting things we got to see at the table. It also sounds like each of you has, has highlighted some of the advantages of uh, social in-person gaming as opposed to computer gaming. Um, I mean, in addition to having kids, I also have worked as an instructional designer in the past, and certainly there's a, a huge push towards gamifying all kinds of learning and so on, but obviously there's certain benefits to certain, like, uh, uh, you know, hands-on thing, almost, in-person things that can be, uh, yeah, that have to be done face-to-face. Like, what sort of advantages do you think that... Uh, I mean, actually, I think you've, you've actually just outlined them, but uh, let's perhaps more directly, what sort of advantages do you see towards uh, social face-to-face? And like analog games? Analog, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Meat space games. Yeah. Know, so mm-hmm. well, people, yeah. Well, I mean, even with, not just like RPGs, and, and even board games, or like, I mean, now there are ways to, you know, play D&D using technology. I mean, technology can make, you know, analog games more accessible. Uh, there, there are certain apps that will let you actually create a dungeon on a tablet. Uh, yeah, there are ways to manage your character sheets on like your computer or a tablet. Um, so if you know, I find with me, if students have accessibility issues, using technology is fine. It's the face-to-face that's the most important. And I think one of the things that we've highlighted is like agency is really important, identity is really important, and negotiating that, mm-hmm. and the way in which analog games allow us as GMs and allow our students to experience real-world consequence, but in a very controlled setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the face-to-face is so important because, you know, 
we, we see this in the, in the age of internet trolls. You know, there's this certain anonymity associated with the internet. And if you are you know, playing a game or you're, you're playing D&D online with a group of random people on a forum or you're playing an MMO, you're not going to necessarily act in a way that you would act if you were facing people in real life, although you're interacting online through avatars. But in role-playing games, you're interacting in person, and you actually have to deal with the people who are behind these characters. And so you have to treat them with a certain level of respect. Um, but that respect extends as far as the character you've created. Um, and that's what I think is most interesting. One of the layers that I think is really interesting, when you watch kids with video games or technology, they can learn that system and how to break that system really quickly. They find the boundaries of a video game immediately. Some kids are dedicating themselves to breaking those boundaries, breaking the game, getting it to glitch out. And certainly kids who are sort of in school with an educational game are going to be like, well, it only does these three things. But when you're sitting at a table with them, they can do all the boundary pushing in the world and you're able to shift the boundaries to where they need them to be to learn the things they need to learn. So they're not going to be treating you like a tool for very long if they bring that in the first place. So I think that that lets you sort of let the, the kids you're working with teach you how to teach them hmm. in a responsive way that you don't get when you've got something that's pre-coded. I, I think for me, the I find that really... Uh, really exaggerated when kids first enter the program. I'm going to say crazy stuff. I'm going to see where these boundaries are. I'm just going to kill that guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. In in the second you're doing that, I'm just going to ask everyone else at the table how they feel about mm-hmm. about watching their friend kill someone. And and in that moment, without removing any agency from someone who says, I want to kill somebody, we get to focus on the reaction of everyone else. Uh, and... And very quickly we realize, like, oh, this isn't, that's not how this world is measured. Yeah. And we can change the measurements or we can change the setting or we can have the world just react in, yeah. in greater and greater ways. Um, but I think what's really interesting when I talk to kids about video games is uh, they're, uh, they're very aware that there are parts of video games that are completely non-transparent. They can't see the coding. They don't know how things work. They don't know the percentages, which when I shoot someone, the armor catches a bullet. They don't know how those things work. And when you don't know how every little aspect works, uh, you do just focus on those rule breaks. And you focus on where you can manipulate the system, but the whys and the hows and, and those, those invisible parts make it very impersonal. Mm-hmm. And it's not reflective of my own choices. I'm just, I'm just working this puzzle. Uh, so even when you're playing online with people that you know, a lot of the, from from what I've seen, a lot of the behaviors of the kids still remain impersonal. I know the person on the other side. I know how they're going to react. And yet we're doing something impersonal. So I'll treat it uh, without without sort of the, uh, the typical ego that I would attach to my own actions. I think we've all uh, already well touched on the, the idea of not only giving uh, uh, the kids kind of social tools and, uh, you know, teaching them how to sort of interact with the world around them in a more positive way, but you're also getting an insight into their own internal worlds. Uh, I think uh, you explicitly, Rachel, mentioned uh, you were seeing how they saw the world uh, by creating another world. Uh, Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah. Do you, do you guys want to... i got to think about that. That's a a big question. That's a really good question. question. I can ask specifically if you have seen, like, an example... Anything you've done, without, yeah, obviously without naming names or anything, but uh. okay. Uh, so one of the things I, I kind of to, to vibe off of what Sean was saying earlier about like consequences and you know having you know a starting player being like, well, I just want to kill this NPC who you might want to be as a, like a plot hook or something. Um, one of the things that I've kind of done that ties into that in this question is uh, created like a shared campaign setting. Uh, and we didn't want to use like a previously published campaign setting at the museum. We wanted to create something completely new. Um, I wanted to do that to teach them creative writing and also you know, how world building is informed by the museum. Because, um, I'm very lucky because we get to play D&D inside a museum. We get to play D&D surrounded by like, dinosaur skeletons or inside a, an Egyptian tomb. Um, so, it, so it adds this extra layer, but all the things that are around us you know, inform the game. And so we have the shared campaign setting where all of the students who I have who are between the ages of 10 and 14 and usually stay with me for all of those 
for all those years, um, they get really, really familiar with the world and attached to it. And so, you know, in the beginning, they're like, well, I want to blow up this bridge or I want to, you know, set this town on fire just because I want to. Later on towards the end, they're like, well, maybe I'm not going to do that because that'll affect some of the new players uh, and that'll affect what I can do in the future in the game. And so I think when they have more of an attachment to, you know, what they're playing, they, you know, they, they start to act differently. But I think they have to develop that attachment first. Because D&D starts off as saying, well, it's fantasy, I can do whatever I want. And that's one of the things that, you know, you know we kind of stress when we play, like tabletop role-playing games. You can do whatever you want. You aren't bound by the structure of a video game that you can exploit. Um, if you have a good GM, your GM will allow you to try to test those boundaries, like Rachel said, and, you know, explore. Um, but the way in which you explore, I guess, changes, if that answers that question. I think, uh, I think a lot of the, one of the biggest examples of how, how the world building sort of comes out of kids, for me, happened when we started uh, our new semester in January, and there was one major topic on the tip of every 11-year-old I know's tongue, and it was, and it was Trump. Trump had just been elected, and world building all of a sudden had twice as many walls in it, and, and looking at how leadership is formed inside of these worlds, they were clearly asking questions and trying to figure out how something crazy happened. And they weren't exactly sure what, they weren't exactly sure if he was brilliant or an idiot. And, and they were trying to figure out how to codify that, what to think about it, and having conversations with themselves, with parents, with teachers, that there wasn't a really easy way to explore. We could observe, we could comment, but that was the extent of it. So all of a sudden in, in games where we're building communities, we, walls were immediately erected. Um, and and then our villages, our towns, our cities started to react to that, of what that wall does for the people on the outside, for the people on the inside. And, and it was really interesting to see to see so many kids uh, come to the same conclusion of, of what should we be experimenting with, sometimes by naming the, the source of, of the inspiration, sometimes not. But it, it seeped in. The conversation was already happening, and then it... And it came up in our in our world building. The tone shift, or even the characters that we met, the types of leaders we were meeting, came out immediately. So while my my setting is not as uh, historically interesting, um, the, the yeah we we found ourselves exploring those really social dynamics. Uh, so no matter where you are, what you're doing, I think kids are, are absorbing everything around them, and sometimes have the language to ask a really direct question, but sometimes just want to experiment and, and act these things out as a way to codify all the things they're processing. I like to call it sneak teaching. Yeah, yes. yeah. we, we did a, a similar one last year when we were creating the world, and we currently have a refugee crisis in the world, and one of the students asked me, uh, we don't have a sky realm. I want to, you know, uh, my family, like... I have, we have friends that sail and I'm really interested in boats, but I've never sailed before. And can we do like, can we have airships? And it technologically didn't match up with the world as it was at the moment. I was like, well, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So we sat, sat down and we created an entire sky world, but the world collapsed and all the inhabitants of the sky world managed to come into our, the, the land and terrestrial based material plane that we had. And now I said, okay, well, we've created all these wonderful characters, all these wonderful rich histories, and they've now kind of found themselves with another group of people. How are we going to integrate them into this campaign setting? And one of the students would say, like, okay, let's just write them a new town. But how would the rest of the people react to that? And so that, that, that's a very similar thing. But instead of walls, we had refugees from, a, from an aerial realm with airships. A more flexible exploration of consequences. Yeah. I was going to say, I sort of came at all of this from a different angle where the point of the program was to get the kids to engage with this historical text and this historical era. So we were guiding them a lot more. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, right on the title of the thing, you know, come play in the world of the Shanama, um, which is this thousand year old uh, epic poem. And the Shanama exists as sort of like a fable, and its idea, again, is to do some of that sneak teaching. Uh, and it exists like as a dot, as a as a text as a cultural artifact. It exists with these sorts of lessons, but it was 
really different taking you know the kids through a chapter of the Shanama, telling them this story, talking about it with them, and then also being like, okay, well, we've followed the hero of Rostam, and he's been you know on this quest to to kill the white demon. What you know, you guys are going to be heading in that direction for your own reasons on your own quests as a party. But like, what do you think of Rostam? What do you think of this process? What are you getting out of it? And watching them through the conversations and then also their experience at the table in this same world on similar adventures be like, oh, you know, we thought he was really arrogant here. We thought, you know, he was he was making silly mistakes or like th- there was a reflexivity that was able to happen where, you know, the first session for sure, they're like, oh, I saw a thing. I don't know what it is. I'm going to kill it. Um, by the end, like there were there were groups of kids that had, you know, gut reaction attacked a witch, killed her, felt terrible about it, revived her, befriended her, <laughs> tried to make it up to her. Um, and we're having these conversations at the table about what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a good person. Um, that, you know, some of them were lessons that the, the Shanama was, you know, very directly trying to teach them. And some of them were lessons that they were teaching themselves by analyzing the Shanama with me and then walking the same path and having these conversations about, well, you know, last, you know, last session we, we totally uh, just trashed that castle and stole all the stuff in it. And this session we're like, oh, maybe those are the people we like. Or, you know, they weren't all bad guys. Or the, What are we going to do about it? So that allowed them to negotiate some of those worldviews that they had brought as sort of initial states. One of the things that I think is really cool about your your program that you run at the Agacon because I, I helped you I helped you develop it yes. is that it 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 is deeply rooted and the goal of it was to connect like tweens with something that's a part of their culture mm-hmm. and by and it it made it feel very real I think so it made it feel like very accessible because like the Shanamai is like it's got like all these different phases and it's it's in, incredibly long yeah. And, you know, if I was that age and I wasn't into mythology or I wasn't into history, there's no way I was going to touch that. It was definitely uh, one of those things where if you pitched a summer camp on just reading the book, you wouldn't have gotten a lot of enthusiasm. But being able to be like, we're going to learn about the world of the Shanama and the eras that it's teaching us about, which are, again, a thousand years ago. And actually a lot of it's set before that. Um, it's a very different time, right? There's there's a completely different culture and so forth in terms of there's nobility and there's heroes and there's demons and there's a lot of social rules that maybe don't make sense to the kids now. But uh, but it's also this pillar of sort of a, sort of a diasporic identity in the Middle East that comes up a lot. And so these kids had encountered it or heard of it or heard of other stories from it. And we're able to be like, oh, that's something that's kind of mine. Um, and then we're also able to make sure that they, you know, a lot of the kids at the Aga Khan we're working with are people who are practicing Muslims or from Muslim families. And so they have names that you might see in the Shanama. And so when we offer them the list of character names, which are taken from the Shanama, they can be like, oh, this is my little sister's name. I'm going to play her or something like that. And it, it was a way to connect with them in a way that I think a lot of fantasy gaming for white kids tries to almost be like, now you are Sir Galadriel, the, you know, and you're like, you are someone completely different. And this one is like, you get to be you, but we're going to go back in time. We're going to go on this adventure and you get to negotiate with the world that we're setting up. See, that's the thing I wish I had as a kid because my, my mom bought me (laughs) the, D&D, like 3, 3.5, the Oriental Adventures book. Oh, no. Be like, this is the only thing that I can find is a- that's, that has Asian culture. But I was like, but or- I, didn't, I hadn't read Saeed before. I didn't know about <laughs> Orientalism. I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, this is not right. <laughs> Don't do that, folks. No. And then, of course, there's like five rings later and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But still, mm. like something like that didn't exist when, when I was a kid. And I, had wi- I wish that something like that had existed. So I would have had a more like, you know authentic understanding or introduction to, you know, my culture. Yeah. Growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit, uh, just because I know that uh, one of the things we've been talking about is, uh, is you know, getting kids involved in gaming on a more, you know, on a household level, uh, families and whatnot. Um, but I might, I might start by, actually, you know what, well, we'll talk about that, but 
I'm going to start by uh, finding out what uh, what you guys have come here to find out about today. Uh, do you want to volunteer? What are you hoping to get from the panel today? And about it? Yeah, what, what are y'all interested in? Hey. Um, I'm actually well, I'm friends with Daniel. I'm actually um, hoping to do something similar, uh, like what he does, but in a Tobago. Go. Um, right. So I just wanted to come in here, everyone's uh, opinions. Excellent. <clears throat> I'd be interested in hearing more about the, uh, the autism group with role-playing. Yeah. Um, I've just moved to Oshawa, actually. Okay. I was involved with uh, Can Do Theatre, which is a theatre group for kids with autism yeah. and stuff. So, uh, unfortunately, I don't know enough about theatre myself. Neither do I. <laughs> sets and stuff. So, it would be something that I'd love to do. I'm a volunteer with uh, Autism Ontario as well. So oh, I'd right on. So, I started role-play with two colleagues from the ROM. They kind of, how it kind of started was we, I, I have all these students um, who are, have autism spectrum disorders at the ROM. And, you know, they started with me when they were 11 and they continued on the program. Something about D&D had like latched onto them and it helped them out. And by the end of it, a lot of them are, you know, are writing and reading at like a far higher level than when they started. Um, parents are really pleased with this. And I was, and I kind of thought like, what am I doing? Like, I, I wasn't sure what I was doing right at the time. Um, for, for context, like, I, I never went to teacher's college. Right now, I'm a PhD candidate at U of T, but I'm an archaeologist. Um, and I met an occupational therapist and a teacher who works in the appeal board. Um, and she is a spec ed specialist. And so they kind of approached me and were like, hey, do you want to try using D&D with adults? Do you want to try taking this outside of the ROM and seeing if we can do something specifically for people with autism? And I said, like, sure, I'll, I'll play D&D more. And so we started role play, and basically what we've done is we've done 10 weeks, and we charged them like $215, and it's very little. I'm not even getting paid for it. And it covers the cost of our space, food, and basically everything, all the, the bare minimum to run the program. I could be wrong about the price. I don't do the logistics. Um, we meet up once a week, and the first day we basically sat down and we said, what are we interested in? Uh, they sent in, we had intake forms because we have an occupational therapist who could run all the logistics, so we knew um, you know, everybody's needs beforehand. Um, but but you know, needs on a piece of paper are different from what the participant actually feels. So we sat down the first day and we didn't even game. I said, okay, what are we interested in? Uh, I brought in some like D&D stuff and I was like, this is what we're going to be using. Um, these are the themes that I'd like to explore with this campaign. Is there anything that you'd like to add? And we just kind of sat down and had a conversation for like two hours, talked about things we loved on YouTube, games we loved, and I got an idea of you know, what they wanted. And I found like, you know, they're just like me. Same interest, it was perfect. Um, then we started gaming. Um, we started with pre-made characters, but we're using Pathfinder because we, a lot of them were like really into math. Um, and Pathfinder is super chunky. And it, you know, if you love math, you love Pathfinder and anything else like that. And I made the characters, but I, I omitted the entire description. I said, this is up to you. This is your character. Um, you create what they look like, how they act, their alignment, you know, everything about them. I just did the numbers for you. And we've been running the campaign and every single participant has come in and you know, on their intake form has said that they have you know, um, social anxiety or they have a hard time communicating with others and we're just not seeing that at all. Um, they're talking to each other, they're staying in character, they're saying, I have a rule that you have to say out of game before you do something or else the GM will, will take it to heart. Um, and they'll say, out of game, let's talk. I wanna do this, but I wanna see if it might conflict with your characters. And they're actually collaborating with one another. And we weren't expecting that until at least a little bit later on. And so there's something really special about D&D. And there's something really special about you know, playing D&D with people you can relate to, which is why I think this is successful. Um, at the ROM, some of the kids have a hard time because they might be the only kid with you know, a diagnosed autism spectrum disorder playing with a group of you know, uh, neurologically normal people. But this group, you know, they're all on the same level. And I think they can all relate to one another. So I think that's why, like, you know, like theater groups, I'm sure, are super successful because you know everybody has a, you know, empathy towards one another. And I think that's the same thing with role play. 
And so we're going to try to expand it to the fall. Um, and maybe our goal is to you know, have like two or three GMs. I was actually going to ask you guys. Um, and each one paired with an occupational therapist and who might play uh, a player character as well to kind of help out everybody and have a, a GM who's, you know, an expert at playing with, you know, people. Um, and so, like, our goal is to ultimately expand and have tons of D&D groups and, and do this for everybody. I hope that answers your question. No, no, it does, for sure. And, and if you're interested, uh, you can find us on social media. I'm sure we'll do all of that after this talk. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm more than happy to talk with you after. Do you see that there's a... Um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, this is a benefit simply of having a, a social group, group of friends that you're, de- yeah. you know, you're kind of dealing with on a more even footing, uh, do you find that it, it helps uh, the players sort of uh, translate the skills to dealing with uh, the world at large? I mean, I, you know, I just, I, it's very fun with your friends, but uh, do you find that it helps to deal with things inside as well? Or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a student, unnamed, yep. uh, came in and has been coming to the, the ROM, so this is not role play. And then come to the ROM for, oh, since he was eight. He's 12 now. And from eight to the, ages of, to the, to the age of 11, he's had a, like a one-on-one assistant. So an assistant who's, who's trained to work with you know, somebody with ASD and um, is with him all the time. Came into D&D and this was the first time I'd had an ASD student with a one-on-one. Normally they don't, they don't always come with one. And the one-on-one is kind of sat there for two weeks. And did nothing. Um, yeah, which is great. I felt bad for him. I was like, "You want to play?" Um, I felt really bad for him. Um, and uh, and the student, he you know, he got into it. But there's a classic like, "I want to kill all the NPCs and all that." I was like, "That's okay. Let's do this." Yeah. And he initially had some friction with some of the other uh, people in his group, and that happens with all kids. But he he actually got in a fight with one student, and you know, I I talked to them, and one student just couldn't understand why he was acting a certain way. Right. And vice versa. Out of game. Out of game, yeah. And a year later, they're like best friends. Awesome. They like play games outside of the ROM and not just D&D. And I'm sure you've seen some very similar things, right? Yeah, we've, I've uh, benefited most of the, most of the kids that are in my program come from a pretty localized area, uh, which I'm sure the ROM sort of brings kids in from a little further away. Yeah. Uh, but we have, we found that we've had we've had kids that have come in and parents who have contacted us like they're not going to get along with other people. We're really hoping they can get some social uh, development out of it. But but really, we're just hoping they have some time to interact because they they have a hard time uh, they have a hard time interacting with other people. They're they're often isolated, uh, and and I found that that I had uh, I had actually an occupational therapist. Uh, that I talked to said the uh, the easiest way to sort of break that down is to just make that person the bearer of all good news. When an artifact is given out, it is given to them. They happen just to be standing closest to the NPC. Um, if if there are titles given out, making sure that this person can sort of arbitrate uh, some of the some of the benefits that the party is holding on to. And and I, I think that really quickly said, well, great. Well, our characters are now going to be all best friends. And, and as soon as you realize that, oh, if I change my expectations of another person or, or I allow myself to change how I expect to deal with other people, our characters will become best friends. And if it's so possible, so easily there, those characters don't actually exist. It's just that we are friends. Yeah. And, and that breaks down sort of the, the baggage that we come in about how we're going to interact. So I found a, a lot of people who come in who say, this is what I'm going to have a really hard time with. You, you don't you don't ignore it. You acknowledge it, but I think leaving yourself very open to this could change at a moment's notice, and and we we're gonna be we're gonna be ready when you find out that you can read a lot better than you thought, or you're a lot more social than you gave yourself credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big deal to just leave that space open because your character can do all the things that you can't, uh, and if you can act those things out, maybe maybe that was just you the whole time. Yeah, if, if you can think it. Yeah, and you can do it. Yeah, I definitely found like the programs are. I don't see the kids over a long period of time, so we had a week to get to know each other, 
And one of the benefits that I had when I was at the Agacon is I was working with people who are trained museum educators. They're very good at sort of like doing a lot of that social troubleshooting, uh, you know, to sort of keep things even enough that you could go through and have a fun time at the camp. So they immediately had suggestions for how to assemble the groups for playing, and that was don't put friends in the same group. We want to take them out of their social norms into this liminal space where they get to experiment, where they get to try new things. So it meant that each of the four groups we had, we would have like an eight-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl, and then a few kids in the middle, because that was sort of the divide we had in the group. And the social gap between an eight-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl is enormous. And there was definitely some resistance there um, and it would manifest either as the, the younger the younger boys sort of running rampant, killing everything, or like I had with my group, I had two older girls who were, I don't care. And again, it was very much about giving them something that was important and helpful to do, highlighting how they were important and helpful in the context of the game, giving them not only that agency, but putting the spotlight on them in a way that they could really succeed at that brought their focus in, that brought their, you know, they started to become invested in the story as well as their character, and they started to feel really proud, and it built social bridges with the other people in the group. So by the end of the class, we had like a 13-year-old girl hugging goodbye to an 8-year-old boy, which is not something that I remember being in any way willing to do when I was 13. And so that was really exciting, and it definitely, like, was a bridge builder yeah. In that in that context, yeah, I really think it's important to to highlight that everybody in the group can contribute something positively. Yes, and, and saying that before you start the game too. Yeah, and that that's the way I like. I wrote a campaign um, with role for role play, and when I wrote the characters, I, I wrote the characters with you know specific abilities that would allow them to complete certain tasks that only they could complete. Um, and, and, I, and I think that is the very same thing. Like, yeah. you know, everybody gets their moment to shine. Mm -hmm. And once people see that and once people realize that, oh, I can't do everything and it's okay to ask for help, you know, that, that social dynamic is like all of a sudden suddenly changed. Mm -hmm. Instead of being a whole bunch of strangers, you're now uh, a group of friends who rely on each other to complete tasks. And it's okay to ask for help. I think that's what makes D&D cool though, rather than online games where you're like, relatively independent you can't play D&D &D alone yeah. it's impossible I've tried in, uh, in terms of, in terms of like age categories uh, Rachel you mentioned uh, 13 year olds playing with 8 year olds uh, uh, kind of getting out of their, their social groups um, that is that's for uh, kind of like a, a was that for like a it's not for tabletop that's for your more like your that was the, the RPG I ran at the Agacon. Oh, the Agacon. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so we were running Dungeon World with them. Okay, so there's, you, there's obviously there's some benefit in having this sort of like, well, not cross-generational, but different ages. Yeah. Um, okay, excellent. As you say, you get some of your comfort zone. Yeah. yeah. What was your age group again, Sean? Uh, we run, we run uh, around 7 to about 14. Okay. Um, we... We typically start at eight or nine, um, but depending on depending on uh, a lot of your social development, uh, we'll we'll talk to anyone as low as uh, as low as seven and, right. and see if they fit in. Uh, if you have older siblings, you can probably join a little a little earlier. Um, we we focus on the age group where kids are aware of of the rule structure that lives around them, but are trying to figure out how it bends and breaks and how it applies to them and how it is built. Right. Where do these rules come from? And between that, uh, at, at that point where where trouble starts to become really real, they're not exactly sure how it functions or or who made all these rules out. That is, I think, the best the best time to really put someone in front of building a world. Mm -hmm. How does, if you're confused about why you can't wear a hat indoors, we could sit there and, and pour over how we got to that, or we could play a game that dives into the tradition of a society yeah. and how those rules change over generations. You can sit down and play microscope with kids mm -hmm. and find out how uh, a, a king that was paranoid about hats a thousand years ago, now no one wears hats and we don't know why. So I think sitting down and saying, what kinds of questions do you have? Um, and then how can we solve those in games really shines 
uh, starting at around seven, eight. Yeah. And then once you get to so the lower end of teen, we have a pretty good idea of how rules are made, how they're bent, how they're broken. And then it starts getting into social dynamics where popularity is a thing that is an ever-present threat. So we sort of change out of the, the focus of what the kids are looking at. Mm-hmm. We sit in that, how are rules made, bent, and broken? Right. Yeah, my, mine is, my age group is 10 to 14 at the wrong, and 18 to 40 for role play. I think it's 18 to 40. Um, I, can't, I wish I could be as flexible on age. The, the only problem is I have so many students that, and I have to lecture as well with me and provide museum content that it would be very difficult. Um, I have 30 students a time, at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> taught, like, I think I've taught over 200 kids D&D. Wow. Be the change you want to see in the world, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, good. I'd, I'd love to do D&D with younger kids. Yeah. In a different system. That's the one thing that I, I'm really envious about you guys is that you can change your whatever system you use. Mm-hmm. We advertise it as D&D and we've used it for so long and the kids return for that that we're kind of stuck with D20. Right. Yeah. My, my favorite system to jump into uh, is a free RPG by a designer John Harper. Uh, you take a D4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, and you add them on to your connection with the wolf, snake, stag, uh, owl, and boar. Uh, if you want to be good at something, put a bigger die. If you want to be bad at something, put a smaller die. All you have to do is roll a 4 or higher. It's the entire system. What's the system called? Uh, it's called Wildlings into the Ruins. Okay. And, and it's really easy. Kids understand that really quick. I know what a snake does, and I know what a wolf does. Uh, and and there's there's no other there's no other math to it. Kids can pick it up. It's super visual. You don't have to know how statistical odds work to know what a D four does. Right. Um, the better you do, the more adjectives you get to add on. Uh, if you roll really well, you can add careful, quietly, and and, and threatening. So depending on um, depending on how well you do. So there's just three tiers if you're adding one, two, or three adjectives. Uh, but aside from that, there's no there's no story, there's no background. We don't know what world we're in. That's all we know. Uh, watching kids figure that out: who are we? How did we get these connections? Are we actual shape shifting beings, or do we just know some creatures that can help us out? Uh, is is really fascinating. I've seen kids take that system into Hogwarts and just change the name of those animals into classes they've taken. I've I've seen them uh, I've seen them hack that system uh, in in a dozen ways and it's really easy because it just here's all of the rules I can teach you in five minutes um, and and for for really young kids it's something that's this is where my imagination goes naturally uh, there's a reason so many stories are anthropomorphic characters the kids have just then this is how things are codified so. So we put them in that system, and I can run that for kids as young as six, really, really confidently because it's, it's, it's quick in, you understand it, and, and I, I think it's really fascinating to see that tool be given. And as kids grow throughout our program, I've seen them come back with that as the bones of a five-page st- story and system they've made, and and just keep that that one game keeps coming back and back and back in the program. Uh, so I think there's a, I think there's a, I think there's a sort of a limit as to how young you can tell certain stories. But I really like how how RPGs can just meet you at your level. Mm-hmm. If you find a, a system simple enough, you can play it at 14, you can play it at six, and because you create 90% of the content, you can you can make it your own really quickly. Right. We are uh, going to the time warning here, uh, but uh, I'm going to do two things before we go. First of all, uh, what did you guys start? To, what did you start getting? And what did you what did you start with? Oh my! Uh, um, I started gaming with second and third edition D and D when I was 11 years old. Oriental Adventures. Oriental Adventures. <laughs> that wasn't. That's one. Wasn't. Luckily, wasn't what I started with. Um, I didn't get that until like you know midway through. Um, but yeah, I started when I was eleven. I'm Twenty-seven now. Did you know that um, uh, Forgotten Realms yeah. uh, at Greenwood was a librarian, and that was yeah. where it started with his games that he ran the library, uh, which I'm not sure if he ever had an educational. <laughs> Speaking of library, 
Yeah. My friend Brendan oh, here is yeah, trying yeah. to. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to do you want to say a little bit about? Uh, well, actually, I'm switching venues now. Yes. But, um, Are you doing community center now? I'm trying to get in a community center in Atoko, but initially, um, I was starting to do a program at uh, Richview Library mm-hmm. at, um, in Atoko, but um, unfortunately, I had a little bit of trouble getting the word out to the local kids. Uh, so I thought maybe switching to a community center would uh, help get the word out better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think Edward was like he was a librarian, and he just. Doing a lot of kids in the library, so hey, we'll play D&D. Yeah, uh, Forgotten Realms was a big part of my childhood. I've read so many Forgotten Realms novels, <laughs> as I'm sure many of us have. What about you, Sean? Uh, I, I grew up in the country, so I had, a, I had a giant forest in the backyard and seven tree forts. And then did no other really imaginative play until uh, I, had a, I had an overnight call center job where we had six hours to sit around. Poker was less interesting to me, so I pitched one day, what if we played D&D? Uh, so we were playing several hours of D&D every night, five days a week, uh, and it was it was an intensive jump into the hobby. Uh, but I started with 3.5, uh, and then and then moved through moved through D&D for a while until a big three-year-long campaign ended, and I don't know what else is out there, uh, and discovered the Apocalypse Engine, and then all these micro games you can pick up and run. Uh, so, so I jumped, I, I jumped deep into the hobby immediately, and then discovered that it was a much, much bigger, bigger ocean than I expected. I was um, uh, back in the dot com boom. I was hired as senior writer at a computer magazine because I was fat and had glasses and had to use email. But uh, it turned out that I had essentially been hired so I could run D D after hours for the, mm-hmm. the other editorial stuff. Uh, That's great. But the dot-com boom didn't last, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right, Rachel. Yeah. Uh, I first played a tabletop role-playing game when I was 25, and I was on a train that was trapped behind a derailed freight train in rural Montana, hmm. and we had nine hours to kill, and it was full of Boy Scouts, and I was a 25-year-old woman. So I went into the cafe car, and I saw a man in a Trogdor burninating the countryside t-shirt, and I was like, you're going to be my friend. And they were setting up, he was with three friends, and they were setting up a, you know, a whiteboard uh, grid. And I was sort of like, what, what are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to play some d and I was like, can I? Well, I would really love to learn in the next nine hours how to play D&D. Uh, and through some miracle, it was uh, the Wizards of the Coast crew with Dark Sun taking it to Gen Con to launch it. And I got to sit down with the designer and... Uh, the you know the community manager and play Dark Sun as my first D and D experience. So I came home and I was like, all right, where am I going to get this hit next? I think you win. Probably the coolest intro you're, to D and D story ever. Lucky. Yeah. I will say just before we close, off, I was when I was thirteen, I got a uh, I got a skateboard, uh, some baseball equipment, and uh, a fastest doctor role playing game. Um, I tried the skateboard and I fell down and hurt myself really badly. Uh, I hated baseball, and now I've... Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> uh, does anyone have any, before we close up, finally, any quick questions or anything? Uh, probably, at this point, we should take them, should, you know, kind of we should take them outside there, perhaps. But go ahead, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm with the Toronto Area Gamers, and um, I recently had a child. He's now a toddler, and um, so we managed to launch Toronto Area Gamers, and they're doing the RPG stuff there, which is awesome. Um, my question from that group and probably to our Toronto area people is now that a bunch of us have kind of grown up and are having kids, I know that there's a real interest in trying to set up um, what we're terming maybe parent-friendly gaming, so the ability to get a group of parents together where we'll rotate running games for children and then running games for parents at the same time. Um, so sp- we're looking at some of the play cafes and kid cafes, but um, it really sounds awesome. what's going on and we can open a platform to be able to push that stuff out too. Mm-hmm. Talk to us. Talk to us. Yeah, yeah talk to us. <laughs> and, and if you're interested in like uh, playing in a world that was invented by kids, I'm running a game at one o'clock. Pathfinder, <laughs> in, in the campaign setting that my students created. Uh, I I have a, a birthday party that I have coming up for a 40 year old who hasn't played games in a long time, uh, but they all have kids. And one of the requests when doing this birthday party is like. Where do we put all the kids that that we we have that we steward that we steward? So uh, we we have set up something that we've never tried before, but we're going to be running Dungeon World with adults, 
and Wildlings, the game I mentioned earlier with kids, and we are going to finish that campaign by merging them to see if it works. I think it's going to. Both systems are rules light enough that doesn't matter if the other person is running a different system, but we're going to we're going to bump into each other. It's a, it's a matter of it's a matter of managing turns. Yeah, because we were talking. We 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 all met up for coffee earlier, and I was talking about how I tried to do a dungeon like a a castle siege <laughs> with thirty children mm-hmm. using modular terrain mm-hmm. on the theater stage at the museum, <laughs> and I ran it using three GMs in three stages of the battlefield. And I only realized, I didn't tell you guys this, I only realized that I should have done that halfway through. Oh, Lord. Uh Imagine 30 kids rolling 30 initiative rolls. We we have... uh, (laughs) Learn from failure. We have the benefit of, I have one of the kids that have been in my program for a while, who's 13 now, is going to be running the younger kids, who are around six or seven. So... He's going to be he's going to be running a table. I'm going to be running a table, and only two of the members of the adult table know this is going to merge at the end. Oh, see, uh, so it's going to be it's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, but I, I think I think figuring out how to game beside your children or with or when they can jump in without end up being your familiar or just rolling the dice on your behalf uh, is uh, is something we're going to see a lot more of coming up, and I, I think it's a really exciting place to figure out. Uh, what games can what games can scale? What games can can be modified just a little bit? Uh, and I think that's a that's a really awesome topic. I'm just gonna interrupt here and uh, we're gonna set up for the next yeah. the next panel. Thank and you I'd for like coming. Thank everybody and our moderator. Um, everybody give a round of applause.